Well, with that, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're going to keep moving through the book of Titus. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. Um, I will be honest, we're going to dip a little bit into verse 7, just the first part of it, to bring things uh, together contextually here. Good morning. Well, this morning we get to uh, talk about what is a pastor and what a pastor ought to be according to the Bible. This is something as I take the stage and talk through is really kind of it's intimidating for myself as I read these things that I want to be as I desire to be a pastor as I see this incredibly high bar that's set in the scriptures for what pastors and elders are supposed to be. And as I do that, I think, uh, one, there's the temptation to try to lower the bar, which we don't want to do that. But the other is to recognize something uh, that isn't true, and that, that there's something about me or inherently about me or other people that make them qualified for ministry. But we want to see that the chief shepherd of every local church is Jesus himself. And I think as we get ready to dive into Titus chapter 1, I want to just for a second look at the end of the book, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Uh, hopefully they'll be on the screen. Because Titus, or Paul says this to Titus, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's really important for me as I step into this passage and, and preach through it, and for anybody who aspires to the office of elder and overseer to remember this. We are made worthy by the one who is worthy, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so even as we read through this, we have to see and have grace with pastors and elders uh, because we have to remember as we get to the end of the book of Titus and it starts giving the qualifications for Christians, they don't look that much different. And as you read those qualifications for what Christians are and what they ought to be doing, you'll read those and you'll say, I do not measure up to that. And as I read Titus chapter one and the qualifications that a pastor must be, I think to myself, I do not measure up to that. But we have to see with grace and wisdom that pastors are human beings as well, that there are sin in them, they are sinful people, and that they have only been justified and called to this ministry according not to works that they have done, but to the mercy of God that has happened in their life. And so I will say that in this passage, just like I would say in any passage of scripture that says, be this way. We are this way because of our identity first in Jesus. Our identity in Christ then enables us to walk in this way. And I have to preach that in front of you to myself today. And so we also have to see, though, it is God's ordained plan to appoint elders over his earthly church who point us to Jesus. That these elders do need to meet certain qualifications. That it can't just be anybody that is a Christian, but it has to be specific kinds of men who fit these qualifications. And so today we want to look at that, particularly in the life of the family of the pastor. So what we're going to do first is we're going to jump into Titus chapter 1, and I'll read verses uh, 5 and 6 here. And then we will 
our roadmap for the day will be to find a pastor, verse 5. Then look at what it looks like for the pastor's marriage and his parenting as we look at the pastor and his family life today. So in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In the part of verse 7 we're going to grab into, because it's a little bit of an incomplete thought there, is for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And so first we need to look and define what is a pastor. And so as we look at that, I want to look at verse 5. I want to let that guide today's definition that we're going to land in at the end of this point. And so what we see here is Paul is saying, Titus, this is why I have left you in Crete. Um, a lot of times it's easy to maybe think of Titus as a pastor himself. It's probably a little more accurate to see that he's a, what we might call an apostolic delegate. Mainly that Titus is doing the work of an apostle with Paul's authority as he goes and he makes these appointments of these elders in every town. And so we see here that the, the, what he says is, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Actually, really, literally, that, that phrase is, you might make straight the things that have become crooked. So he's come, and he's going to kind of straighten things up. And we're going to see that as he talks about the family life of individuals in the church in chapter 2. And then he's going to roll that into what Jesus has done in us, and then just the ordinary lives of those people. But before he can do that, in order for healthy families to exist, in order for healthy Christians to exist, there has to be healthy leaders. And that's who these elders are. And so we want to look here and we want to see what the pastor is. And so there are three things that I want to note just from this verse here of what a pastor is. And the first thing is this, is that a pastor is not alone. In this passage, the term for elders and overseers, they're both plural. Not just in this passage, but actually in every passage of the Bible that talks about elders and overseers, every single one in the New Testament is always in the context of plurality. There is not one single passage that talks about just one pastor ever in the New Testament. Even when we see the word used singularly in 1 Peter, which we'll read here in just a, in a while, it's still in the context of plurality. He's saying, me as an elder, I'm extorting the rest of you elders. And so you can see there on the screen, I won't read all those passages, but these are just some different passages that you can go if you want to fact check me, you're free to do that. But I am telling you, in every instance in the New Testament, Pastors are always talked about in plurality. And so that's one thing that we want to see is that a pastor is not alone, even in the local church. Now, we might look at that and you say, but Josh, we're going to ordain just you alone when we do this covenant service. So are we off? Are we doing what's wrong? And what we would see is that in the church planting context, like what we see in the book of Titus, sometimes different parts of the plane are getting built as you're flying it a little bit. And so we'll have one elder, but... So that you all know and are aware, in my life here, externally and internally in our church, we do function in a plurality. We have a provisional board made up of pastors from healthy churches who've come alongside us that I meet with on a quarterly basis, who hold me accountable, give me wisdom and advice when children get COVID, they're there to answer my phone calls and deal with all that kind of stuff. I am not flying this plane solo. 
We have people outside, pastors, qualified elders, who meet with me and advise me on the outside. And even on the internal, it came together, and this team will change and function over time, and the people who are serving on it now know that. We do have a leadership team here right now. Kendall, Jimmy, Leland, and Ben meet with me every Tuesday night. And once a month, we meet in person, and we do something that isn't just planning. We do something that's pastor-ish as the come together. And I confess my personal sin before those men in our church. And I submit myself to them in this temporary amount of time. That is something that elders will do together. But it's something while we don't have multiple elders, we're functioning in that plurality. I confess my sin to them. They confess my sin, their sin to each other. We break up, we lay hands on each other, we pray over each other, we make sure that we're all doing well spiritually. And so once a month, we purposely say, plans are not the most important thing. Our souls and our hearts, the heart of our pastor, which in this case is me, is important. And we're going to fight for it. And so we're going to give up time and we're going to pray over each other. So right now, that's what we have. And it's an elder-ish kind of thing. That doesn't mean everybody on that team will be an elder. Some people have already voiced on there. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be an elder, and that's okay. But what it means is in this core group of guys who bought in really early to Redemption Hill Church when this was just a dream, we're saying, we're going to come around you because we recognize that I'm flawed, and I need accountability, and I need help, and I need hope, and I need the gospel preached to me from other people. And so I want you all to know that that is happening Because we take very seriously the idea that leadership needs to happen in the context of plurality. And so even though one day we will make this more official and there will be elders and overseers and deacons, which we won't talk about in this particular study, but for the time being, that's how we function here at Redemption Hill Church. The other thing that I want to note is that this is one office. So we can even see here in in verse 5 that we're looking at, but it says, it uses the word elders, which is presbyteros in Greek. And so that, elder, that word is used there, but then it's used synonymously as another term, which we see translate, translated in the ESV as overseer. Some of you may, your translation might say bishop or something like that. And, and, and it's episkopos is the Greek word that's used there. Um, they're interchangeable all throughout the New Testament. We see all throughout the New Testament that these, this term for elder, this term for overseer are used in different things. And we can even see the interchangeableness here in our text because the qualifications don't change. These aren't two different offices that are being talked about, but he's talking about appoint elders. And then he says, and this is who elders are supposed to be, but instead of using the word elders, he uses the word episkopos. It's just a synonym that he's using all throughout scripture. And so we see that there are all these, script, these synonyms being used. And even in places like 1 Timothy 5, you see that there are elders who get paid by the church and possibly elders who don't. But I would argue, and we won't dive deeply into that, but I just want you to know, because this is an important thing for you all to be aware, we don't view those as being authoritatively different. So while, and it is the goal of Redemption Hill Church to have elders who are paid by the church and have elders who are not paid by the church, those elders who are not paid by the church are very, very valuable to the church because they root us in the community. They help remind us. uh, For one thing, when you start paying people and the only people on your team who are pastors are the only people getting paid, you can very quickly professionalize the proclamation of the gospel. um, And then a pastor leaves for a professional kind of reason. And now what do you do? 
He left. But when we have people who are rooted in the community who don't get their main payment from the church, it actually avoids a pragmatic Western problem, and it roots us in the community. And so that's something that we want to have in the future. And the difficulty is because I will carry most of the preaching load here at Redemption Hill, and that will happen until I die or God does something really crazy and moves me on. But that's the plan, just so you know. Our plan is to plant this church and to be here until I go home to be with Jesus. That is the plan. That's what we want to happen. But even as that happens, the temptation is Josh has this term of lead pastor. He preaches a lot. So that must mean he's like the real pastor and these other people are just like this functional advisory board. And that's not what's happening. That's not how we're going to function. Elders are elders are elders are elders. They hold the same amount of authority and they will speak into one another's lives. They have the ability to uh, tell me that I am wrong. And that means that I will, and even now already do, in that functioning of plurality that we see, I lose. And when I lose, that is to the benefit of the church. Because nobody is right all the time. We don't want a situation where one person is right all the time. I have to be able to lose arguments for our church to be the most healthy that it can be. And it happens. And in staff meetings, when you've got a lot of passionate people all together, things sometimes get really passionate. And that's okay. That actually means that you're comfortable with each other and you love each other and you're afraid to advocate for your position. And we want that to be happening because that's how we get to the best ideas for our church and the best ways to lead our church. So as we look at that and we see that there's one office, one synonymous term, what's really interesting is in the West, we rarely call elders and overseers elders and overseers. Actually, I'd have never heard, even at Paramount, us be like Overseer Kevin or Overseer Rush. But we say the word pastor all of the time here in the West. And that term is not found here in Titus. So we, I think that's really curious to me. Why do we use that? And here's why. So the third thing to note here is the term pastor. The term pastor comes from an old French word, pastor. Probably pronounced with a French accent, right? So it comes from that word. And that word is taken from a Latin term that mean, means to shepherd. So literally, a pastor is a shepherd. And what's actually kind of interesting to that is that verb, to shepherd, is used, or that the, the noun form of that verb is used 18 times in the New Testament. It's only translated as pastor one time. And actually, if you look at our ESV, it doesn't even get translated as pastor there. See, the word pastor in the New Testament is really, really rarely used, but the word shepherd is used a lot to describe this particular office. And in the West, we have called this person a shepherd. And what we don't know is we're just using an old French term for shepherd. I don't know why, but it's stuck. And so for some reason, you guys don't call me shepherd Josh, which would be kind of weird. Elder Josh seems kind of weird. It seems kind of Mormon, and we're not Mormon. And overseer Josh maybe even weirder. So you can call me pastor, and that's fine, but that's, the, that's, the, that's where it comes from. That's why we do that. It just, that's kind of the history of that word. Because here's what's really interesting, is all throughout the Bible, this idea of a shepherd being ascribed to leadership gets traced even in the book of Genesis. In Genesis forty-eight fifteen, we are told that the Lord 
will be the shepherd. And we, if you can remember what's happening at that point, at the end of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel have gone into Egypt because of a famine. And in that time, Joseph, because he had been exalted by the Lord to have a high stature in Egyptian government, got his people, the Israelites, a very special place of land, which was a place that was really good for shepherding and feeding livestock. Egyptians thought shepherds were dirty, so they knew that this was a good place for them to get into the economy and place of Egypt, and so they became shepherds. And so these people became shepherds, and it was a part of God's chosen people were, were, were named, or were their primary vocation in Egypt was shepherding. And then Jacob tells his sons, God will shepherd you. He will lead you. And so what's really interesting about this is even talking about God, this term that's often kind of this dirty term, shepherd is blue, shepherding is blue-collar work. It's not white-collar work. It's dirty work. You're grabbing sheep. You're wrestling them around. Sheep are really dumb. That's what they're known for. They make really bad choices. You leave the 99 to go get the one, right? Because that's what sheep do. And that's what God's leaders were called even in the book of Genesis. We can think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd i shall not want and the whole psalm is about that and there's lots of psalms that talk about god shepherding his people god coming into the worlds of us dumb sheep and leading us guiding us caring for us and then you you move a little forward and and there's this guy who's really really important in the old testament his name is david and when david first gets introduced in the old testament he is literally a shepherd out shepherding for his father, Jesse. That's what he does. And then when David becomes anointed king, it's said of him that this king shall shepherd the people of God. And so it's it's being used all throughout. And then in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, there's shepherding language used. In Ezekiel 34, there is this hardcore crackdown on the shepherds of Israel and how they're failing. And in that, God makes this promise that he's going to bring about a true and better shepherd. He's saying, I'm going to bring someone who's going to shepherd my people the way that my people ought to be shepherded. And then in John chapter 10, Jesus tells us, I am the good shepherd. And that's what he does. And and Jesus is walking with Peter, Peter who often uh, gets caught in leadership kinds of conversations about how great and awesome he's supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, you're not, it's not about being great. It's not about being awesome. You're a shepherd. You're a bull collar worker. You get, you get dirty. You work hard. You get around these sheep. You smell like them. You're a part of them. So much so in Peter's life that the end of John chapter 21, after Peter has failed and the resurrected Jesus comes to him. And he has to restore him to his ministry after Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus asks a question three times to Peter. And and in different ways, he says, do you love me? And every time Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And then Jesus looks looks at him and what does he say? Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. Those are the three ways that he says that to Peter. And so you have Peter, and he's coming in, and Peter is a a leader kind of guy, and Jesus is saying to him, if you love me, Peter, you will feed my sheep. And then listen to what Peter, in his letter of 1 Peter, says to another group of pastors and elders. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 4, it says this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock 
that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted it to you, but being examples to the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And the chief shepherd is the good shepherd. It is Jesus. And so that's what Peter is, is being taught, and that's then what he's teaching. And so in the West, what do we call the leaders of God's church? We call them pastors. We call them shepherds. Because we see all throughout the Bible, this term embodies what a pastor is supposed to be. So here we go. Here's my definition. It'll be on the screen of what a pastor is. I, I can go and I can pull uh, from seminary textbooks, or I can do these kind of things, and their definitions are probably better. But as we start a really new church, I thought it was really important for me to show my heart to you of what I believe the scriptures teach a pastor is. And a pastor is this. A pastor is a man that serves in the context of plurality, leads a godly home, exemplifies a godly life, teaches and guards the word of God, protects, guides, admonishes, cares for, and watches over the souls entrusted to him by God in a local church. He serves willingly, sacrificially, and humbly, knowing that he will give an account before God for his faithfulness. He exists to pull it all under his care to the chief shepherd, Christ Jesus. That is what I believe a pastor is. Now here's what's hard about sermons like this. What in the world are you all supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to obey? I've got Monday morning, I've got work. Well, it's a big application point, and that's what I'm going to do. I'll give you an application point at the end of each point today. They're going to be very, very big picture for us at Redemption Hill Church, and you can encourage others to do this in your life, who you know, and that is this. First one, application point number one, join a church where you will have a shepherd. Or shepherds. (laughs) Join a church where you have shepherds, people who don't think of themselves highly, men who don't see themselves as lording themselves over other folks, but rather people who are willing to do the blue-collar kind of labor that pastoring really is. People who will come into your homes, people who will embrace your messy life, who are having you into their homes, who are rubbing up against you, who start to smell like you, and you start to smell like them, because that's what you need. You need shepherds, people who will do the hard work, but ultimately people who will do that hard work in pointing you to Christ. So now that the term of pastor is defined, let's go ahead and jump into what do they have to be. So that's what I want to look at first in these qualifications. First is the pastor's marriage in verse 6. It says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. That above reproach term literally means blameless. So they, ha- they are blameless in the relations to what they're getting ready to, to, to list out here. Blameless in that he is the husband of one wife. Now I do think that the, uh, the one wife kind of stipulation, uh, while it obviously rejects anybody who's a poly- polygamist, um, I think it does a little bit more than that. But it's also, I do want to kind of say here, that, that this is more about faithfulness, meaning this. If somebody isn't married, that doesn't disqualify them from being an elder. If somebody doesn't have multiple children, as the next part will say, that doesn't disqualify them from being an elder. But we want to see it's the principles that we learn from this. And I would say, though, 
it's probably normative that elders will be married, and it's normative that elders will have kids. But it's not a uh, qualification in that kind of way, but rather that what this text tells us is, is the literal rendering of this would be he's a one-woman man. He has committed himself to one woman. And I would say faithfulness is the big theme that's being pulled out of that. That's what we need to, to be. However, for those elders who are married, in order to be a one-woman man, I think you have to not do some certain things. These are the kinds of things that would immediately disqualify someone from being an elder at Redemption Hill Church. Should that man commit adultery, he would be disqualified. Should he be found to be addicted to pornography, he would be disqualified. If there were complaints from women in our church that he was unnecessarily flirtatious, he would be disqualified. You have to be able to know how to interact with women. If he were to abandon his family, if he were just to say, I just don't want to be married anymore, he would be disqualified. These are the kinds of things that would disqualify a pastor, a sitting pastor here from being a part of the church. Because what we want to see is that they would be a one-woman man over a long period of time. Those kind of things disqualify you from being a pastor at our church. For people who have had maybe a divorce in the past or things like that, for us, the way we would work through that would be, is the divorce on a biblical kinds of grounds, right? So Paul talks about if your wife is a non-believer, say the guy became a Christian later in his life, his wife didn't become a Christian, and she then abandoned him. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that Christians are free in that scenario. And then Jesus teaches, and he says in the, uh, the literal word he uses is pornea, but it's sexual immorality or adultery. If your spouse commits sexual immorality or adultery, you would do that. I would say at Redemption Hill Church, if that happened to a sitting elder, we would ask that person, even as, as hard as those things would be, to step down for a significant period of time. Because we would say, man, for your own soul and the things going on in your life, we need to remove the burden of pastoral ministry from you so that you might heal and, and grow. And right now, you're not qualified to keep moving forward. That doesn't mean in that situation that that person couldn't be restored and redeemed since their spouse is the one who left. And we'll talk about this when we talk about children here in a second. Even pastors cannot be responsible for the decisions and salvations of other human beings. But that's what we would see. And if somebody had a divorce in their past, we would say we would want to see over a long-standing period of time, I would say a very long-standing period of time, that they're a one-woman man. So if they were divorced and remarried, it would be important to us to see that they didn't like just get remarried, right? Like a year ago, he gets remarried. He's like, let me be a pastor. Probably not, man. <laughs> be married for a little bit. There's no magic number. There's nothing like, those are wisdom-based decisions. But I just want you to know that's the way we would think through some of those kind of complex issues. If someone was divorced before they became a Christian, I think we can show some grace and I, I don't know, uh, if, if you guys are going to hold me accountable to every sin that I committed in my early 20s and when I was 18 years old, I could never be qualified to be a pastor. But now that I'm 30 and I've showed a long-standing period of time of faithfulness in the context of Paramount Church, that's what we're doing. And we're asking you to, to trust the eight years that I served as a 
pastor in training at Paramount Church as we come and do this. So I'm not dodging the bullet myself here. Because here's the reality, is we're looking for men of our church to be pastors who are in it for the long haul. That is one of the most significant things you learn about a one-woman man. He knows what it means to be in it for the long run, in it for the really long haul. Because the reality is, is you learn things when you're in it for the long haul that you cannot learn in any other context. One really uh, small lesson that I would give is this. So Brittany really likes it when I buy her flowers. But here's the thing about me and buying Brittany flowers. We're both super ignorant to all things flowers. Brittany would tell you that. She doesn't really know what kind of flowers she likes or doesn't like. And so early on in our marriage, I did what probably lots of married guys do, right? I looked and said, well, what did my dad buy my mom? And my mom really liked red roses. So when my dad bought my mom flowers, he would buy her a bunch of red roses. Here's the thing. Brittany's not a huge fan of red roses, right? But she was really nice. So she didn't want to say, like, I don't like your red roses. So I had to kind of buy the red roses and then watch and see that she would kind of say, oh, thank you, right? Because she's a nice person. I, I married a nice woman. And, and in that, I had to learn, okay, that's probably not hitting it, right? And what I started to learn is I started trying out other flowers. And I would bring them to her and I'd buy them to her. And, and there are flowers that make her go, oh, thank you, and there are flowers that make her go, wow, oh, these are so beautiful. Days later, I just love the flowers that you got me. Oh, I just love them, I love them, I love them, right? She'll say that, and she'll put them on display. People will come over to her house, and she'll say, oh, look at these flowers that Josh brought me. She wasn't doing that with red roses. Red roses would just kind of sit there, and she's like, oh, thank you, right? But, but what I learned over time is Brittany really likes assorted flowers, she really likes flowers that have uh, some pink petals in there as well as some white ones. And she really even likes it. The ones that really get the great response are when they even have like the little green flourishes that have like little bits of white in them. Like that's the things you learn when you've been married for seven years that you don't know when you're married for one, that you don't know when you're married for two. And I know seven years probably seems like a really long time to learn about flowers, but I don't know. I guess I'm just really dense. But that's something, that's a lesson that I learned over the long haul. That's something that I had to figure out. And now when I buy flowers, I do, I do pretty good. Yeah, right? Like it, it's, it's, it's there. Right? We just got flowers, right? She talked about them for like days. Like I know I did a good job when that happens, right? Because that's how that works. You know, in America, the average tenure for a pastor at a local church is 3.6 years. 3.6 years is all that the average pastor makes it at any given one local church. The problem is after 3.6 years, you're still buying red roses. After 3.6 years at, at, at a church, you are just learning what that church is really all about and all the different idiosyncrasies that come with a local church. Local church pastoring is very similar to husbandry and is very similar to slowly wooing a people to yourself as you lead them ultimately to Jesus and watch him woo himself to this group of people. But you learn about those people over a significant amount of time, and it takes time. There's no shortcut to that. In our bylaws, we have a statement that I know is a little controversial, where we ask that someone is a long-serving member of our church for at least three years before they're a pastor. That's why we are looking for pastors who are in it for the long haul. We are looking to deprofessionalize what is the pastorate. Because that's going to mean, hopefully, 
that actually what we might call lay pastor, mainly that their vocation is somewhere else, will outnumber pastors whose vocation is directly through the church. That's something we want to happen because those are the people who have taken the time to woo the church to themselves. They're not buying red roses. They're buying the flowers that the church likes because they know the body and they know the church because they've been here and they're committed to it for the long haul. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have staff that does pastoral kind of things. Should Lord bless us and we grow really, really fast and we have more fires to put out than we realize. But even then, when we would hire somebody, we won't call them a pastor until they've been here for about three years, proven themselves and fill out these qualifications. And then the body says, we recognize that person as a pastor. When people start calling him as a, him a pastor and, they, and we think, oh no, he's not a pastor yet. And the people around here say, really? That guy's not a pastor yet? But he's doing all the pastory kind of things. That's what we're looking for. People who are already doing the job that don't have the title. That's what pastors are really meant to be. And so there, uh, we, we want to look and see, what do we see in our application point? Sorry, I'm going to skip a point there of the uh, Ephesians 5 passage. Look for pastors who are in it for the long haul. As we grow as a church, we want to see that we see pastors who are like Christ. We'll go back to it now. Sorry, Ben. Ephesians, or sorry, Lauren. Ephesians 5, 25-33, Paul talks about what a husband should be, but he actually does it in the context of what Christ is to the church. And this is what we want to see pastors do and be. They want to be like Jesus. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus is doing to the body. He is sanctifying us as Christians, the church, over time. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Listen, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The reality is, is we have to look for that kind of pastor when we look for our churches. Those kinds of people who are in it, they're willing to lay down their life, they're sacrificial, they're willing to do it. They don't serve begrudgingly or because they have to, they serve because they want to. Because that's what it takes to be in it for the long haul. If you only serve because you feel like you have to, you will burn out. We're looking for men who want to serve because they desire it. Because God is stirring something internally in their hearts and we're recognizing that as a body. Who are able to teach and reprove. So look for a pastor who's in it for the long haul. As we look for pastors who are in it for the long haul, we also get to look at their parenting as well, because this speaks volume about their character. Verse seven or verse six says this for if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. As we look at this reality, we, there's some words here that we have to look at. So one is what I just said earlier, uh, a little bit when I was alluding it to it earlier, is that the children must be believers. I think the KJV actually does a better job here. The word there is pistos that they're using, which is actually the, the word for faith. And it's being used as a verb. So it's saying children who are faithful. The KJV says it um, 
like this. Having children faithful, not accused of riot or being unruly. So faithful children is what we're looking for, and children who are faithful to that pastor as a father. Because the reality is, is I have no control, just like you have no control, over the salvation of somebody else. God saves them, and they respond to God. I can't make my kids be a Christian, though I really, really wish I could. And I'm sure every parent in here wishes they could do that. We can't. That's not how it works. So I don't think we're holding pastors accountable for something that they can't do. But we are looking for pastors who have the kind of relationship with their kids that we would say their kids are faithful to the pastor. Their kids respect and look up to the person. Because after all, kids spend a lot of time with the pastor. There are other things that we need to look at as well in this verse, like these terms of debauchery or insubordination. We look at the term that gets translated here as debauchery. We want to see the context of what that looks like. It says, so at 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4, it says, it uses the same exact word, that term for debauchery. It says, for the time, for the time this is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So we talk about what can't kids do, right? The KGV is a little tricky there. Well, it says riot for that word. But maybe, you know, debauchery. Here's what this means. Judah goes running down the hallway because uh, some translations will say wildness. And really, really legalistic people are like, oh, that pastor's kids, they're just so wild. He can't, he can't be a pastor. Can you even believe that? They're always people without children, by the way. But, <laughs> right, they say that and they say those things. And they're like, oh, they're so wild. The word is debauchery. The word is, is the same word in the context of drunkenness and orgies, passions, lust, drinking parties. Like, so like, if my three-year-old is going out to drinking parties, like, you're right, we have a serious problem. <laughs> Josh should not be a pastor. But if my three-year-old takes off running down the hallway and I'm like, Judah, stop, Judah, stop, and he just keeps running because that's what three-year-olds do, that doesn't disqualify me or any other pastor from ministry. As we look at that as well, the word insubordination there, in Titus, uh, verse 10, it says, for they, uh, the, uh, looking at that, that same word, is, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. That word isn't just like this word that you would use, like he's insubordinate during Sunday school class. Right? This, is, this kind of word is mutiny. They're literally trying to take over the church in Crete. And Paul is saying, that's insubordination that cannot stand. That's insubordination that we've got to cut off. Because they are trying to take over and usurp the authority of the apostles, which is the same as usurping the authority of Jesus. That's the word for insubordination. So if my kids or other pastors' kids annoy you during Sunday school, that does not mean that we are now disqualified from ministry. That's not what insubordination they're kind of talking about. A kid that misbehaves every now and then. But rather, one that is causing total and complete uh, up revolt in their family. That's where we'd have to look and say, I don't know that this pastor is qualified for ministry. Because I would say this, if, if we want to take these hardcore legalistic stances on wildness and insubordination with the pastor and his children, then you're asking for the same kind of legalism to be applied to you because that's what we're saying is pastors have to discipline the people of God. 
watch how they discipline their children is that the way they ought to discipline the people of God, right? So fall asleep during a sermon, we kick you out. Because after all, if my kids are just annoying during Sunday school class, that's the one-for-one kind of translation. Running down the hallway, you dodge door hangering on a Saturday because it's not very fun, we have to, like, kick you out of the church. Now, we don't do that, one, because it's crazy. But that's also what I was saying about when we have these unrealistic expectations of pastors and their children. Like, it's crazy, Pastors, kids, and pastors are human beings. We cannot put undue pressure on my kids or anyone else's kids who become a pastor. The reason why I'm doing this isn't so much to protect myself. It's because I want there to be other pastors in our church. And I'm doing this because that's the role of lead pastor. I will always protect and defend those men against the onslaught of legalism that comes from churches. That's not fair. And not only is it not fair, it's unreasonable. And it's not how you want them to actually pastor and shepherd you. I would imagine you want some grace. You want some mercy. You don't want running down the hallway kinds of sins to get you up in front of the church for church discipline. And in the same way, that's what pastors need to have as well. That we have to see that it is important that a pastor manage his household well. In First Timothy chapter 3, 4 through 5. As we look down there in, in verse 7, it talks about being a steward. In First Timothy, the, the word he uses there is that he must manage. I think this is so helpful for us to make that connection. It says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's the comparison being made. If they can't elicit submission from their kids, then we can't expect them to elicit submission from the church. That's the comparison. But in the same way, what you don't want is a guy who fathers his children in a strict authoritarian kind of manner because he will father the church in the same way. Nobody wants to go to that church. I don't want to go to that church. Where it's my way or the highway, obey me and nobody else. We want humble leaders who utilize grace and, 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 and bring people in with fatherly compassion. And that's how they elicit love and respect. And that's what we want to see in the life of the family of the pastor. Does he elicit love and respect from his wife because he cares for her and woos her and takes the time to figure out what kind of flower, flowers she likes? Or do we want the pastor who comes in and says, I want dinner to be on the table this time. That is, that's ridiculous. That is not biblical manhood. That is not what God has for any leader. We're to lead as Christ led. And Jesus stepped down from his throne of glory, became a baby, lived in a here, in this messed up, screwed up world, and allowed his own creation to crucify him to a cross so that he might exalt himself for the benefit of his people. And that's what we want to see in a pastor. Is that a pastor is somebody who does not exalt himself for his own benefit, but rather puts the needs of the people of God before his. So here's your application point. Look for a pastor that is a good steward of his children and who is gracious with them and their failings. We want pastors who do those things. So as I wrap this up this morning, and I know this is, this is kind of those things where it's, it's, again, this is hard text to pull into Monday morning. What does this look like and how do I do that? 
Well, one, I want to say, because it's not always about Monday morning. While it's really Monday morning is important and it's coming and you need something to hold on to, the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. It is really important to be a part of a local church because that's what we get to do is we don't have to just sprint, sprint, sprint. Sometimes we get to do things like this and look at passages that talk about the long haul. What is our church going to be over time? Who are we going to ask to lead us as pastors? What are we going to look for? And ultimately, like I started this morning saying, what do we want to look for in our, in our pastors? We want to look for men who point us to Jesus. And that's our final application point to hear. As we look at this, maybe some of you, it's stirring within you to aspire towards eldership here. Maybe that's something that you, you think you might be interested in. That's where you have to start. You have to ask that kind of question of yourself. Am I the kind of man who points people to Jesus? And that's something that I think we can all get behind, regardless if we want to be a pastor or not. We can ask that question. Do I point people to Jesus? Does my love, my compassion, the way that I live life with my family, the people around me? The passage doesn't talk about grandparenting, but it could do you grandparent in a way that you point your grandchildren to Jesus? It doesn't talk about being an aunt or an uncle, but it could. Do you care for nieces, nephews in such a way that points them to Jesus? It doesn't talk about being a brother or a sister, but it could. Do I point my siblings to Jesus? And that's what we want to look at today, is what is the passage pointing us to? Because what is the book of Titus pointing us to? Are we a people who say, don't look to me? Look to Christ. And that's what we want to be. And that's what I want to conclude with is that idea and that challenge to you. Are you somebody who points others to Jesus? Let's pray. Dear me, Father God, we love you and we thank you for this time to walk through what probably feels very businessy like. We, def- we did a definition today as one of our sermon points. God, help us see that this is important. The men you call to lead your church must be qualified. Lord, I pray for myself and for the other men that you are calling up and will one day call up from within Redemption Hill Church to lead her. God, I pray for protection in their lives. I pray against the enemy. I pray that as they experience temptation, that you would bring other godly men and women into their lives that they can open up to and confess sin to and, and, and find grace and mercy and restoration in, that a pastor's sin doesn't just immediately disqualify them. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, you would help us grow in what it looks like to be a restorative kind of culture as we look to be a leadership community that constantly restores one another when there are difficulties in in marriage and there are difficulties in parenting, that, God, we have such an open relationship that we're not shocked when the divorce happens because, God, we see the warning signs. One of the most horrific things that happens in church cultures is pastors and leaders never open up. They never talk about the struggles or the difficulties until everything explodes. So, Jesus, I just ask that you would protect our leaders from that that they would have places and spaces to open up so that the explosions don't happen because we're taking care of them early and we're fighting sin early and we're fighting sin together. Lord, I pray that you provide 
community and opportunity, plurality in our leadership, that we might be able to do that. Keep us accountable and humble. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room. I ask that we might all be a people who point others to Jesus. And I ask this in your name.